Amen. Amen. Well, twenty-one years ago today, about this time, Jan and I were in a doctor's office in Germany, and a friend called us and said, "New York is under attack." And uh, we ran home, turned on the TV, and watched as the second tower was attacked and they started to crumble and come down. We watched as, I, I don't think that anybody who lived through that can forget the issues. You know, the pictures of all the ash and the dust and the, the horror of somebody flying an airplane into a building. The other year, 2018, we went to, uh, went to Nepal with some folks here uh, out of this region and we stopped in New York and went to the Trade Center, same place I had been with my family, only it looked very different and there you can see. Why do people do that? Why was this, what goes on in a person's mind that they plan their own suicide in such a dramatic fashion? Why do they do that? I, I don't know all of it, but having grown up in the Middle East, I remember the Six Day War very vividly just as a teenager. I remember going to school one morning and my classmates looked at me and they said, yesterday I had a home. It was a boarding school for uh, young boys from all over the Middle East. And there were some there from Jordan who said, yesterday I had a home. Yesterday, I had a family. Today I'm looking at my mother's gravestone that has been destroyed. Uh, our apartment building that we lived in was right on the Mediterranean across the street from the British Embassy. And students from the university and from the, the, my high school gathered in the, the park place, the parking place down, and they were throwing Molotov cocktails and whatever they could find at the British Embassy because of their support for Israel. And here we saw Israeli jets flying overhead, and the Lebanese army came, and they uh, set up a tank, loaded it, and aimed the turret right at all these students that were there and then the military came over the fence with bayonets attached and chased all of the students away that were that were demonstrating why all of these things were the result of unresolved 
conflicts. Issues that had started and had exploded and expanded and still aren't resolved. They've affected every one of our lives. I remember after 9-11, I was invited to speak with some of the other pastors, but as an American, they invited me to address the city and the, the market square was packed with people, people who were afraid, the Muslims were afraid that there was going to be retaliation on them. Everybody was afraid, is this going to happen to us? And I stood up and said, there's something that God can do in the midst of all of this to take away your fear but it's where we go when we have unresolved conflicts in our lives where God needs to break through. God needs to touch our lives to bring his resolution. He is the one who heals the brokenhearted. He is the one who binds up their wounds. Unresolved conflict is something that is a part of the church. We don't like to think about that. That's not something that is part of our daily life. We'd rather hear the good news of the gospel that, you know, is, is, is there to, to, I don't know, do, do whatever I want it to do for me <laughs> so that I got a great life. And yet, in spite of all the promises all of us, at times in our lives, face different kinds of conflict. We've already looked at that last week. We saw the issue of personal conflicts, the issues within my own heart that I haven't resolved, issues of sin, issues of hurt, issues of, of being upset, of loneliness, or whatever it is, depression, or, or sickness, or, or confusion. And in all these things, there is an answer to our personal needs. And our personal answer comes when we repent of our sins and we turn away from following our own desires and say, Jesus, I'm going to put you first. You come first. I'll come into my life. Take over. When we do that, when we take a public step that says, I am no longer going to live for me. I'm going to live for the one who died for me because I know his plan for me is the best one and I'm going to serve him. When we do that, there is forgiveness that floods into our hearts and removes from us the sin and Jesus says that he will remember it no more. He's going to take it as far away as the east is from the west. If you can imagine how far that is, he is going to put peace in our hearts peace with him and peace with one another. That's what Jesus does when we have personal conflict. That is the resolution that we yearn for and that is the only way that we will find resolution to it. You look at me like, what? You mean I don't have to go to a counselor and go through years of, of therapy? <laughs> Wait a minute. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And you want to come through Jesus to repent of your sins and ask him into your life. Come down here and say, I need to get baptized and we'll fill that with water and we will do it. We'll do it next week.
<laughs> you can just stand here and say, my life is now united with God in Christ, and I'm going to stand here in the water. I'm, I'm going to die with Christ. I'm going to be buried with Christ, and I'm going to be raised with him to the newness of life. The second one is, what happens when people don't like that? And they start to create conflicts. They, they laugh at me. They speak behind my back about me. When I was a kid, when I realized what my, my friends were doing, and I lost all my friends. You know how that happened? I, we, I was on the school um, newspaper, and in our office, um, they, they put in a, a poster and said, the ones that are really elite, they do this. And they listed a dozen different sins that they all did. <laughs> That made them really cool. And then they wrote down, the ones that are not elite are people who carry New Testaments in their back pocket. And underneath that was my name. And as a 16-year-old, that was kind of rough. As a matter of fact, I made the worst decision of my life at that point. I said, well, if following Jesus means that I don't have any friends, I don't want to follow Jesus. It was a bad choice. And my life went downhill after that as a result of that. When there is outside attacks on us, then the answer to that is to take it to the Lord and begin to fight the spiritual battles. And God gives us the strength and the weaponry in prayer. That's an incredible thing, that there is, there is spiritual warfare, but the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith, that's the Word of God and faith. God is there fighting with us and for us, and we can overcome when we go to the Lord in prayer. And we can also know that that is the place where I learn to forgive those who have hurt me. It doesn't happen otherwise. Otherwise, I'm going to carry a burden on the inside that I cannot bear. And if I don't forgive, it's going to cause a real issue between me and God. When I, when I sit down, I've got to find out, you know, I've got to keep short accounts. But, it, but if I don't learn to forgive those who offend me, I'm going to become an offender. Let that one sink in. Then we started to look at this last time. What happens if there is internal conflict within the church? Now there's going to be more to the conflict issue. I'll pick that up next week because we only have part one last week. We'll have part two next week. But we're going to look at conflict resolution in terms of the church. What happens when in the church there are issues that arise and every church has them? Somebody's going to complain about something. <laughs> it's just, I don't know whether it's, God plans it that way so that we have to become people who confront conflict and learn how to deal with conflict. But that's what happens, and we can learn a lot about what happens. Now, just as a review, and for those that weren't here last week, let me just go over what happened in chapter 15 of Acts. We're going to be looking, and I'll read uh, from 12 to 35 in just a minute. 
but what, what, what happened was that there were people who came to the church up in Antioch, that's in Syria, and they came there and said, if you really want to be saved, you need to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. And so they had a big discussion and argument, and they said, no, God poured out his spirit, and people have been healed, and Paul and Barnabas told them all about the amazing things that God did amongst Gentiles, uh, those are heathen or people who were not Jewish. It included every other group of people. So then they decided that they're going to have to have major resolution to this issue. You see, the, Jesus is the Messiah. He was a Jew. So if he's a Jew and, and he's the Messiah, then if you want to be saved, you have to become a Jew. You got to get, and the only way to become a Jew is you have to be circumcised and you have to obey the law of Moses. So that's the theological argument. <laughs> and now they go back and they say, wait a minute, God's doing something new in the world and there's this conflict that has arisen. Now, they send Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem. They get to Jerusalem and they start to have this big debate. And some of the Pharisees who were believers put up their case. And then Peter stood up and he said, hey guys, wait a minute. You may remember, this is the third time he tell, he's telling his story. <laughs> he said, I, I, I got called away from the Tanner's house and I went up to Caesarea and uh, the, the angel and dreams and all this stuff is, I, I'm just overwhelmed by it. And they come together and suddenly all these people are there and I'm going, what am I supposed to do? And the guy said, well, we're here uh, you tell us. <laughs> you know, I'm going. And so he just starts to tell them about Jesus. And while he's telling them about who Jesus is, the Holy Spirit falls on all the people that are there in the same way that it fell on the day of Pentecost on all of the apostles and the 120 that were there at that time. And so Peter goes back to the others and he says, you won't believe what happened. It wasn't my fault. I didn't do anything. I didn't know why I was there. I was just telling them about who Jesus was. The next thing I know, God's doing all this stuff. It's incredible. And, 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 and it, you realize it's not my fault. <laughs> so that's back in chapter 11, right? And now we're fast forward three, three years or so. And now here we are. And we're dealing with the issue again. And Peter gets up and he says, I want to tell you something. This is what God did. It wasn't something that man did. In the same way that when Moses went up into the mountain, God came down and met with him in a unique, powerful, special way and wrote on the stone tablets with his own finger. And he brought the tablets down from the mountain. That was the same thing that happened on the day of Pentecost to us when the Holy Spirit came down and wrote His law on our hearts. And it's the same thing that happened when the Holy Spirit came down on the Gentiles and wrote His law on their hearts. It was not an act of who we are and what we did to coerce God into doing something that we wanted Him to do. God chose in His sovereignty, in His mercy, and in His incredible grace that we were singing about this morning to come down and write his law on our hearts. Yes. 
It's a gift. And if he can do it to them that don't know who Moses is, and they haven't memorized the Old Testament, and he can still write his law on their hearts, then, then friends, who are we to create issues and laws and things that upset them? We don't need to do that. And when Peter got finished telling them that story, everybody kind of got quiet. And then Paul and Barnabas got up and, and they started telling them of the mighty works of God that he had done throughout all of the Gentiles in, in Cyprus and in southern Turkey. In the two and a half years that they were on that missionary journey, he showed them how God had moved with power in spite of incredible persecution and opposition, God raised up a people for himself. Now, that's the background. And here's, the, here's where we're at in verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions put... The, uh, there's some wind blowing here from the air conditioner, and it blew by page back to 13. All right, we're in 15 now, 15 and verse 13. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Now, this is not James, the brother of John, who was murdered by Herod. We read that previously. This is James, who was a brother of Jesus. And he has become, this is, an, this is important, he was, he was the elder, the chief elder of the leadership team of the church in Jerusalem. The apostles are still there, um, but in this particular case, Peter is not the judge of what's going on, but he is a witness to what God did. And so he's giving his testimony, this is what God did, and now the decision-making process falls upon James. So James says, brethren, listen to me. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with, the words of the pro and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. This is written in Amos chapter 9, verses uh, 11 and 12. After these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble or harass those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter to them. 
the apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, those who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. And after they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching, with many others also, the word of the Lord. Now, in every church conflict that I have witnessed or been a part of, (laughs) it seems to me that it's always a theological issue that is put out in the front. And behind that politic, that theological argument, you know, this is what you need to believe, there is a political situation where others are there wanting to be in control. The same thing is here. Notice there were Pharisees who had become believers. If the Pharisees win this argument, guess who becomes the leaders of the church throughout the known world? (laughs) If the Pharisees win this argument, then the apostles that Jesus put in place and gave instructions to are overruled. Now that becomes interesting. Fascinating to me is that in all of the discussion that we just read, not once was anything referred to either Jesus and his great commission that he gave to his apostles on the day of ascension. It's not even even listed there, which was to them, you need to go out and make disciples of all nations. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. <laughs> what did he command us? Love God, love one another. You want to, I mean, seriously. You want to know what God wants us to do. He wants us to make disciples, teaching people how to love God and how to love one another. That's what he is telling us And never once in all of this discussion was that ever mentioned. 
And in the, in the background, I see this, this discussion going along. How are we going to resolve a theological issue, which is a major theological issue? And it's going to cause serious trouble throughout the church, and it's going to bring division and upset if people have to follow and learn by heart all the rules and regulations that go along with the Torah. I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, this is something that I don't think anybody here has done. <laughs> and we're grateful for it. We are the beneficiaries. We are the ones who have gleaned benefit from this council that resolved this major conflict. It, it was resolved once and for all. There were others that continued in the heresy, but this conflict was never a problem for, for people who are uh, genuine in their faith and in their love for Jesus. I, I, I find it amazing. So I want to go back and find out how did they go about resolving this issue which became not only a great resolution to the problem that they faced, but it also brought great encouragement to the church. It brought peace to the people's hearts. And the, re the result was worship of God and a return to the leaders to say, this thing has been taken care of. It provided a foundation for the continued growth of the movement in its early stages instead of squelching it. We want to be, belong to those who are going to see the church grow and expand for God's power to touch individual lives and families. We want to see God move with power in our community. We want to see things change around here. We want to see people coming together regardless of where they come from, what their cultural background is, what their linguistic background is. We want to see those who love God and who love Jesus coming together, worshiping God together. That is the view of how God sees the world. And I want to be on God's side. Yeah. I want to be working where God's working to see God's results the way it's going to be in heaven. He doesn't have a little corner of heaven just for the people from Long Creek Baptist Church. It, it doesn't that corner doesn't exist. He doesn't have a corner for Germans. They think that maybe, but... <laughs> then somehow we're going to be able to speak and understand one another regardless of what language we've got. I, I'm excited about what heaven's going to look like. Uh, I know I'm going to be absolutely astonished because anything that I can think of is not going to compare to what it will be like when we do get there. All right? So I want to get rid of the conflict and I've seen at the end of this, the conflict has been resolved. And it brings great benefit to the whole church. <laughs> conflict resolution is good. So often we run into a conflict and what do we do? We hide our heads, our ears, put our head in the ground. We turn around and run from it and we let it simmer 
and it will affect others. People start to speak about it. People take offense because of something that you did or, or somebody else did to you and, and I talk about it and so they take my side or somebody else's side and it festers and people who are totally innocent in it, like in the World Trade Center, those people were totally innocent of the issue between Arabs and Jews. They had nothing to do with it. But that conflict festered so bad and it hasn't been resolved that it is still an issue to this day where people are cautious. Even the war in the Ukraine being fought between Ukrainians and Russians, people are concerned that it could spill over into the Middle East. I, I sit there absolutely astonished at what happens when conflicts are not resolved over a long period of time. When God provides an answer. The first thing here is that they went to find leaders. They went to spiritual leadership. They went to those that Jesus had put in place that he himself had trained. And they had an open and honest debate. Isn't that amazing that they could sit there and discuss this back and forth? And so here are all these leaders, and they're, they're discussing it, they're throwing it all back and forth, and, and, and then Peter says, listen to me, this, this is what happened. We can't start telling God what to do. But when God works, we need to respond to what he's done. So the first thing is that they have this appeal which went to the leaders. And that initial discussion was which leaders? <laughs> do the Pharisees have a say in this? Or do the apostles who lived with Jesus have a say in this? The open debate... And then they had to take a look at what did God do? What does God do? He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. <laughs> That's what God does. Who are we to sit in judgment of somebody that God does not cast out? Think about that. Suddenly, you, you, you know, it affects when we take a look at what God does. Do, do you know that when God saves us, none of us are perfect? And all of us go through issues? And the issues that I go through may be the same that you go through, but probably not. And for me to understand your issues and for you to understand my issues and for us... It can be difficult and it becomes a very easy thing for us to judge one another when actually what we need to do is to allow God to take care of the judgment. They had an open debate. They looked at God's intervention. They looked at what did God do. And now if God did that, if God did that, have we got the right to complain and be upset with him because he chose 
to save people that we don't think should be saved? <laughs> Do we have the right to exclude fellowship from people that Jesus saves? It's not an easy question. And yet, so much of our dissension in the issues that come up has either been because we've, we've become legalistic about, about our processes, about our customs, about our culture, as opposed to the activity of God who breaks through all of those things to touch our hearts. I, I know that this is just the first council, and there were many councils that came afterwards, including one that came up with the Baptist faith and, and mission statement, and, and it's good. It's healthy. It's good for us. It gives us common ground. Uh, those are wonderful, wonderful things. But it comes because in the growth of the church and as the church moves along and we face conflicts, we resolve them by seeing what did God do. The second thing is, does the scripture confirm what God did? Isn't it interesting that they're dealing here with Pharisees, so their, their argument doesn't go back to what did Jesus say, who is the greatest prophet of all, but to one of the minor prophets, here's Amos, and he says, this is what God said long ago. This was his intention. Come on, wake up, guys. This is what God wants to do. He wants people in, in Pender County to get saved. <laughs> that's his intention. And we don't want to be the ones that cause trouble that's going to stop that from happening. We want people to experience the love of God that transforms lives. We don't want to be the ones that put a roadblock in front of God's intentions. The second thing is, this is marvelous. He quotes something from 2 Samuel, um, and I believe this is chapter 16, uh, sorry, 6, verse 17. He talks about the tent of David. The tent of David. When David in Second Sam Samuel comes with the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, it's, it's, they've retrieved it from the house of Obed-Edom, and, and now he's dancing before the Lord, and, and the people are blowing the trumpets, and the priests are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and, and finally the law of God and the, this Moses' staff and, and, and that budded, and, and here they come back in, and he goes up on top of Mount Zion where the city of God is, and he builds a tent he puts up a tent. He doesn't build a temple. He doesn't build a tabernacle. He builds a tent. He puts up a tent. And he puts the Ark of the Covenant in the tent. There is no veil in front of it. There is no special tr treatment. It's the presence of God in the city. And all the city experiences it in such a way that it's called the city of peace. Jerusalem. 
Salam, peace, the city of peace, because God's presence is there. <laughs> it's incredible. God's presence is available and people can come up into the presence of God, into the city without having anything to stop them. And he says, God's going to rebuild the tent of David where there are no walls to keep people out from the peace of God that God has. Oh my goodness. The city of peace? You want to know where the city of peace is? Just turn around and look at somebody. Just look at somebody right now. Turn around. Just look at somebody. And just say, the peace of God is right there in your heart. <laughs> That's where the city is. We are here in the city of God because where God's presence is, there is peace. Oh, hallelujah. The confirmation of Scripture. Now this is fascinating to me. The last one is really important. In order to solve, to have conflict resolution over this major issue, they put together what the Holy Spirit has shown them, where they are all in one accord, that this is what God is intending. They write it down in a letter and they send it back, not just with Barnabas and Paul, but with others that go with them who are going to be able to attest to that to all of the churches throughout where Antioch and Cilicia, that's where Tarsus is up in southern Turkey, they are emissaries going around to the churches to let everybody know. And they want to know what does the church say about this. The church, folks, is not a building. The, folk, the church is the people. That's us. We are the church. And so how do we respond when the resolution comes, this is what seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit. How do you respond to this? How do you respond to the issue that you've got? What happens when we have a struggle and, and there's this dissension within the church and we've gone to the leadership and we've said, give us some help, give us some direction. They spend time praying about it. They hear from God. They see what God is doing. They find out what the scriptures have to say about it. They send that back to us when we receive it. Are we going to receive that as the answer or not? When we do, then the peace of God comes and permeates the lives of everyone in the church. The conflict becomes resolved. And with the resolution is not only peace and rejoicement and encouragement, but they, in other words, the process is not just a process between the Pharisees and the apostles. This is a process that is going to be carried out amongst all of the new churches that have just been started, that Barnabas and Paul started everywhere else, and they're going to come back and they're going to say, this is what the church, how the church responds. The church responds in peace. The church responds in peace. I take one look at this. I'm saying, Lord, this seems so clear and so obvious. Why does the church not do this? Why, why have we strayed from this and instead 
we get mad at one another and leave and go somewhere else and we take our baggage with us wherever we go <laughs> rather than coming back and saying, Lord, we need you to intervene and bring resolution. And we need, if we need help, we need to know where can we go. We have places to go get help. We've got a network of churches here, and we've got a network strategist who's a, a fabulous man of God who listens and who has come and wants to know what's going on, and he prays for us. It's often on a Sunday morning, he's praying for each one of us as well as praying for me. And, and I get these messages from him at, at 5.30 in the morning, praying for you this morning. <laughs> That's on a Sunday morning, you know. I mean, these guys, these guys love us and care for us. And if there's an issue that comes up, boy, I sure hope that we don't just try to run roughshod over one another, but that we start to take this process and we go and we submit, have an open debate. We say, this is what God has done. That we look back and see what has God has done. Then we look at what do the scriptures have to say and how does God's word address the very issue that we're dealing with when we see how stand that. And if the church responds to that, then we all have peace and encouragement and joy in the presence of God again. Isn't it amazing that when we read stuff in the scripture that it actually has important information to help us discover and understand how church ought to be run? <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed. It seems so simple. And yet when we look at it, God provides. God provides in the midst of the struggles that we have. So we've looked at three different kinds of conflicts, and we see that in each one of these kinds of conflicts, God has a means to bring about resolution that both honors him and brings peace to our hearts. I don't know what kind of have personal issues you may have taken on somebody else's offense. You may be sitting there struggling with how do I forgive. You may have those personal kind of issues that have to be resolved in order for relationships to be rebuilt that are falling apart. God is able. I don't care what the issue is. We can bring it before the Lord. Maybe you're just constantly being battered, it seems, by stuff that's happening to you. And you're sitting there saying, I, I, I need to be, instead of being weak, I need to be strong in the spirit. And I need Jesus to give me the weaponry and the armor necessary to withstand all the attacks of the devil on my soul. And if that's the case, then there's a way to do that. And God forbid that we end up having issues in our church. But if we do have issues, may God give us both the strength and the will to submit to a resolution process that's going to bring about peace and God's involvement in our lives. We don't need to run away from the conflict. We need to resolve the conflict. There's a world of difference between the two. And the resolution to the conflict is what's going to bring about stability in our own hearts and in our own minds. The place to do that 
is when we come to the Lord Jesus in prayer. And regardless of what the conflict is that you're looking at or you're overcoming or you're facing or if you're grateful for having overcome a conflict, then the place to do that is here in the presence of God at at the altar of God. You know, sometimes I think like this morning, we ought to all be down here. We're either giving thanks for resolutions that have been made or we need to ask God to, to intervene where resolutions need to be made and they need to come and we're struggling or we know people that are struggling and we're carrying. He is ashamed or afraid to come to the front and have a time of personal prayer with God. We ought to, we ought to be able just to, sometimes it takes one person to come out and then everybody else comes. But, you know, we don't need to have that kind of, of putting off a move of God in our hearts. We, we need to be open and sensitive and, and, and able to say, God, I need to receive from you today. And if that's where you want to be, then please come down here while we sing, I surrender all. That's really where we need to be. We need to be in the place where we, each individual, surrender our all to Jesus.